Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. Mary Isabel Catherine Bernadette O'Brien was born on the 16th of April 1939 in Enfield to a family that enjoyed music. As a child, Mary would learn to sing at home. But as an adult, as Dusty Springfield, Mary would experience all the highs and lows that international stardom brought with it. From the highs of worldwide number one singles and recording what is regarded by many as one of the finest albums of all time, to the depths of depression, drugs and alcohol, Dusty saw it all. Needless to say, she survived, conquering her struggles and eventually regaining her reputation as one of the finest female singers Britain has ever produced. A true icon in the world of popular music and one of the defining voices of the 1960s, Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of Dusty Springfield. I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the bench, they think it's all over. It is now. It's gone. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Yeah, 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 y
Mary O'Brien's childhood years were not exactly deprived or particularly tough, but there were certainly some serious struggles along the way. She was born just five months before the outbreak of the Second World War to an Irish immigrant family in London, who soon moved to the relative safety of High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire. The O'Briens could be described as quite an ordinary family. Her mother, Kay, the dutiful housewife. Her father, Gerard, an income tax consultant. Gerard's real passion, however, was for music, with dreams of being a concert pianist. Mary's brother Dion, five years older than her, also was an accomplished musician by his early teenage years. But despite what appeared to be a happy home to the outside world, Mary would remember it as quite the opposite. Her parents just didn't get on, she would recall many years later, and her father was a very bitter man with a foul temper. Mary grew up in a house free from any emotion, her father distant and mechanical, while her mother sat at the table slowly getting drunk on cups of tea laced with generous drops of booze. Life in High Wycombe was your typical middle-class suburban existence. Mary would learn a lot at this time about the importance of speaking well and having good manners, something she would convey for the rest of her life as a genuine part of her personality. If truth be told, Mary considered her parents to have a terrible marriage, sticking together just for the sake of the kids. They'd certainly try and get along, but were just unable to do so. In fact, listening to her parents' constant sniping at each other, throwing things around the house and even fighting physically, it just served to put Mary off a marriage for life. With all of this going on around her, Mary struggled to be noticed. As well as the tension in the house, she found herself overshadowed by her talented older brother Dion. In later years, Dusty would say that she could never recall ever being hugged or loved as a child. Mary's father, as well as hitting his wife, would also take it out on her as well. He could be violent as well as verbally aggressive, calling her stupid and ugly and making a point of her tomboyish appearance. Years later, Dusty would confront her father about his abusive behaviour and ask why he'd hit her as a child. He just denied it ever happened. Luckily, amongst the anger, upheaval and turmoil, there was one piece of common ground in the O'Brien household. The entire family were musical, and it was Mary's love of music that would carry her through some of the darkest days.
house will be filled with the sound of classical music and jazz with works ranging from Mozart to Jelly Roll Morton. Jazz was probably the bigger of the influences, and it was around this time that young Mary developed her love for Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. As well as singing along to the accompaniment of her brother Dion on his guitar, Mary also formed a schoolgirl band along with fellow classmates Angela Patton and Jean MacDonald. Their rendition of St Louis Blues went down in school history for being banned from a school celebration of St Stanislaus feast day for being too raunchy. Mary was fascinated by blues music and from that early age she decided that that was what she wanted to be, a blues singer. This fascination was also coupled with a lifelong love for musicals, and she would cherish the visit she would make with her mother to see the latest Rodgers and Hammerstein on the big screen. Mary's singing was attributed by her in later life to her desire to be one better than her brother Dion. Dion was certainly the more gifted musically, and with a sense of inadequacy haunting her early years, Mary discovered that she could actually do something better than him for once. And it was all due to that precocious, strangely adult and slightly eerie voice. Something just clicked inside Mary O'Brien in the summer of 1955, Now 16 years old, she'd left St Anne's convent in Ealing and was determined that she was not going to be a typist or a librarian, for up to that point, that was really going to be her destiny. awful glasses and the unstyled hair, and a new Mary was born. Not quite dusty yet, but she would only be a short step away. Now, with a determination that if she wanted to be something else, she would have to become someone else. In place of the frumpy look she had carried for so long came a new black dress from Harrods no less, and in the style of her heroines, June Haver, Peggy Lee and Doris Day, a brand new platinum blonde hairdo. Mundane job after mundane job followed. There was the job at the laundry, and the sales assistant job at Bentles, the department store in Ealing. But as well as this, there was still the regular visits to the theatre and cinema with her mother, plus the occasional acting lesson. Mary's brother Dion grew up to be like their father, insomuch as he was at heart a frustrated musician. He had found schoolwork so easy, whereas Mary had to study hard for her achievements. 
Even during his time in the armed forces, he still managed to play piano in the Navy, Army and Air Force Institute's jazz band. Back on Civvy Street, he continued practicing with Mary, singing along as before, until eventually, one night when Dion was performing at a London club, he dragged her on stage, and together they brought the house down. That night, Mary was offered her first paid job in entertainment, earning the grand sum of 17 shillings and sixpence a night. Mary suddenly found herself smack bang in the middle of an adult world. A world where really she was still just a child. She looked a lot older than she actually was, but remained the innocent Catholic girl who was yet to experience the usual teenage pleasures of dating, holding hands and movie going. Work in the clubs would continue until 1958, when she joined an all-girl vocal trio. The group was eventually named the Lana Sisters and it was set up by Riss Chantel. Riss had played guitar in the famous all-female Ivy Benson band and decided to make a go of it herself. She formed a three-piece instrumental group which consisted of two other girls on piano and mini bass with herself on guitar. As the group developed, it became apparent that their vocals were actually quite good. So the instruments were dropped and the band became a sister act, much in the same vein as the popular Beverly Sisters at the time. One of the girls dropped out to look after her sick mother and Mary was hired in her place. And although by now Mary had attained a great deal of club singing experience, there was still a lot of practicing required when it came to performing or stagecraft. But it all worked out well, and the Lana sisters went on to become quite popular with a respectable performing and recording career. manager, Evelyn Taylor, who also happened to be Adam Faith's manager at the time, booked the girls as support act for Nat King Cole 
along with tours of Ireland and the US air bases around Europe. But when it came to recording success, well, it was a case of almost. Their debut single, Chimes of Arcady, failed to make an impression. The second single, Buzzing, despite an appearance performing it on 6-5 Special, did little better. And Tell Him No, released soon after, sold only a few more. Again, despite an appearance on the BBC, this time on Drumbeat. Trio also recorded their version of Seven Little Girls Sitting in the Backseat, You've Got What It Takes, Someone Loves You Joe and Twosome. Although these singles threaten the charts, just hovering outside in most cases, the closest they came to any real chart success was with I Want That Boy and The Seven Little Girls. But typical of that time period, a lot of hit songs were covered by different artists on both sides of the Atlantic. The Mudlarks managed to gain the hit with that particular record. Around this time, Mary took her first stage name, Shan and within a year was a professional singer with numerous TV appearances and a recording contract to her name. The Lana Sisters were voted seventh favourite British vocal group by Melody Maker in 1960, but it wasn't enough for Mary. She had bigger plans and needed to move on despite achieving so much by the age of 18. In the back seat, everyone in love with Fred. Oh yes, we like 
dancing and I hug him with Fred. Mary was tempted away from the Lana sisters by none other than her brother Dion. Sit you down beside us and we'll take you back a while. Marching down through Jupiter and accounting every mile. Handsome boy was John McGuire. He set a hundred hearts on fire when he was marching through Georgia. Dion, Mary and Tim Field together would make up the group The Springfields. Dion became Tom Springfield and Mary became Dusty, with Tim electing to keep his given name. The band were adept at their version of a combination of pop and folk and the first few years of the 1960s saw them touring Butlin's holiday camps, along with six-month-long engagements at some of the more fashionable, yet seedy Mayfair clubs. Clubs that were renowned for being the kind of places where London's high society would rub shoulders and shake hands with the organised crime gangs that ruled Soho and the West End. It certainly got them noticed, and as their popularity grew, they were signed up by Phillips Records in April 1961. Billed as Britain's popular new singing group, they released their version of Dear John, a recording of the American Civil War song Marching Through Georgia. Please name the wedding day, dear John, the church lives just across the way. DJs were unsure if this was pop, folk or both, but it certainly had them intrigued. The single failed to chart, but now the group also had on board the talents of producer Johnny France and Ivor Raymond, the former jazz and classical pianist who'd also been musical director for Wally Stott at the BBC. And her eyes were baby blue. Said John, I kinda like this town. Acquire it's time to settle down. Life was so rosy, cause soon he heard her say, She said, Dear John, dear John, please name the wedding day. Dear John, the judge lives just across the way. A warning we must give to you. You see what big blue eyes can do when you go marching through Georgia. Springfield's first hit, which also happened to be the first hit for Tom Springfield as a writer, was Breakaway. In July 1961 it broke into the UK Top 40 and managed to remain there for eight weeks. Oh! 
For their third single, the group chose to record an old Italian carol. Originally entitled Tuscendi della Stella, but renamed Bambino, with new lyrics by Tom. Released with perfect timing for the Christmas market and reached number 16 in the chart, staying there for three months. These three singles, released in fairly quick succession in 1961 that were all quite cheerful in their own way, guaranteed the group maximum exposure through radio shows such as Parade of the Pops on a Saturday and Easy Beat on a Sunday afternoon. There were also numerous well-received appearances on incredibly popular TV programmes such as Thank You Lucky Stars and The Benny Hill Show. In fact, the group was so popular, by the end of 1961 they had been voted Best Vocal Group in NME's End of Year Poll and Top Vocal Instrumental Group in The Melody Maker. Incidentally, it would be the TV shows that would influence Dusty to change her appearance in those early days of the Springfields. At this time, Dusty's hair was more or less back to its more natural auburn colour. But seeing herself on black and white TV with her dark coloured beehive, she looked more like one of the Queen's own guards wearing a busby. Needless to say, she soon adopted a platinum blonde version, the hairstyle that she would forever be associated with. fourth single, Goodnight Irene, did not perform so well unfortunately, and the Springfield's first album, Kind of Folksy, released in February 1962, didn't fare much better. The album included folk songs such as The Green Leaves of Summer, along with the more country and western The Black Hills of Dakota.
April 1962, the Springfields finally got a foot in the door of the American market when Silver Threads and Golden Needles reached number 20 in the US chart. I don't want a lonely mansion with a tear in every room. All I want's the love you promised beneath the haloed moon. made little impact on the UK hit parade and Tom Springfield was worried that the group would be labelled as a country and western band. Indeed, much of the US audience were unaware that the Springfields were in fact a British group. Offers from America came pouring in. But due to a hectic workload and pre-arranged bookings in the UK, Dusty eventually felt the strain and her voice collapsed, leading to the first hospitalisation of her career. The strain was felt throughout the trio with arguments about which direction they should be taking musically or what gigs they should be performing. First of December 1962, it proved too much for Tim Field, who quit the band. recording would be on Swahili Papa, a novelty record complete with war whoops recorded by Dusty which she absolutely despised. Field was replaced by Mike Hurst, coming on board at a time of immense success for the trio, seeing them become one of the top groups in the UK. Since Dusty was a small child, she'd fallen in love with America and all things American. Her dream to visit the country finally came true in December 1962. If you want him to be the very part of you, 
Stopping off in New York for a few days before flying on to Nashville, Dusty was captivated by the sights, the smells, the sounds, and of course, the music. In Times Square, she first heard the Exciters with their version of Tellin. It was the attack of the song that gripped her, and she would recall how it sort of got you by the throat. Out of the blue it came blasting at you. That was what I wanted to do. Springfields were going to Nashville to record what else but a country and western album, far removed from the soulful, black-influenced music that Dusty adored. The Exciters were part of what was known as the Uptown Sound, largely created in the Brill Building in Times Square, where people like Burt Bacharach and Hal David, Carole King and Jerry Goffin, Barry Mann and Cynthia Vile were all knocking out hit after hit. The Uptown Sound was a New York version of what the black R&B musicians played in the South, and Dusty loved it. Oh, when I was a little bitty baby, my mama would rock me in the cradle in the On to Nashville, where the group recorded their next album, Folk Songs from the Hills. Featuring a variety of old-time country classics, the album cover showed Dusty wearing a tartan dress perched on top of a bale of hay. Behind her, Tom and Mike strumming on a banjo and a guitar. Meanwhile, back home in the UK, the Springfields were achieving incredible chart success with their latest single. A song which we're very happy is a hit for us in England, and we hope you like it. It's called Island of Dreams.
Island of Dreams would reach number one in the chart and would remain the group's biggest selling and most famous record. And despite the song's massive success, Dusty hated the version they recorded. I wince every time I hear it, she said. I had a sore throat when we recorded it and I know I sang out of tune. Returning to England inspired by the sounds of black America, pumped by the enthusiasm and the energy of music and the performers, Dusty was convinced that she could produce a different sound. There would be a few more months before the British invasion really took hold in America, but the Springfield's trip changed everything for the group, and even more so for Dusty. Gone were the neat blouses and tidy petticoats, replaced by sexier form-fitting sheath dresses, and the trademark hairstyle became longer, blonder and more teased. for Dusty would also mean embarking on her first love affairs. And as she put it herself, by 1963 she was as capable of being swayed by a girl as a boy. In reality, she was actually almost exclusively swayed by girls and almost never by boys. As a committed and practicing Roman Catholic, her feelings caused her far more anguish than she would ever let on. In the 1950s and the 1960s, women were encouraged to wear high heels and makeup for their men. 80% of women were married before the age of 25. In a society that emphasised femininity, lesbians faced a complete rejection and were usually presented as butch, manly creatures who were mocked and scorned for their wicked, perverted desires and their sad, lonely lives. Gay women at the time would often adopt the concept of the career woman or the bachelor girl, which simultaneously would indicate and mask a lesbian identity. Dusty would disguise her fear of discovery by being ultra-feminine and concealing herself behind a beautiful mask of makeup. After the massive success of Island of Dreams, the Springfields were voted Best British Group again in the NME 1962 poll and were earning £1,500 per week, 
the equivalent of about £30,000 today and about 100 times the average weekly wage at the time. The follow-up to Island of Dreams was Say I Won't Be There, a reworking of Eau Claire de la Lune. The single spent 15 weeks in the UK chart, peaking at number 5. In 1963, the arrival of the Beatles changed everything. With Please Please Me, followed by From Me To You, which rocketed to number one in April, followed by She Loves You in September, the game was up for the Springfields. As Tom Field would say, we saw the Beatles coming, and we weren't rock and roll. Our group had gone about as far as it could. We were also quite fed up with each other. The Rolling Stones soon followed, having played their first gig in July 1962 and released Come On in July 1963, followed by Lennon and McCartney's I Wanna Be Your Man. This was it. The time was right for Dusty to break free and embark on a long dreamed of solo career. The British revival was happening and she was more than ready to be part of it. Dusty and Tom said later that they had always planned to cap the group's career after three years. Something that fellow Springfield Mike Hurst was not aware of. Hurst recalled vividly how it all happened backstage in Blackpool in 1963, when Tom, completely out of the blue, said, Why don't we break up? To which Dusty, after the briefest of pauses, replied, Yeah, why not?
Springfields gave their final performance in October 1963 on Sunday night at the London Palladium. Here, they were presented with a trophy by the compere Bruce Forsyth. Dusty cajoled her brother Tom into singing So Long It's Been Good To Know You. Dusty broke down in tears midway through the performance, overwhelmed by the emotion of the moment. There was no turning back now, but Dusty had probably selected the perfect moment to go solo. Despite being part of a group, she had also been voted 8th in the top British female singers by Melody Maker. It was 1963. There was the Beatles and there was the Stones, as well as dozens of other British acts waiting in the wings. And for Dusty, now was the time to tell the world, and more importantly to tell herself, that she could make it on her own. solo single release, Dusty chose a number written by Mike Hawker and Ivor Raymond. Dusty had already recorded nine other potential singles, but none of them seemed quite right. That was until on the 25th of October 1963 she recorded I Only Want to Be With You. Released in November, three weeks after the Springfield's final concert, it was a global success, reaching number four in the UK, 12 in the US, six in Australia and 21 in Canada. In the US, Dusty was the second British artist after the Beatles to have a hit to enter the Billboard chart. It entered at number 77 in the last week of January 1964. Arrangement by Ivor Raymond is unmistakable with its relentless ticker ticker beat and cascading drum rolls, full on choirs, and Tower of Power horn section pitched against soaring rock strings. It would set the standard for Dusty's later hits, such as Stay a While and Little by Little. Dusty would also record the track with an almost identical arrangement in German.
And so, Dusty firmly stamped her own identity on her first recording, her first truly pop song. Success would flourish as Dusty went on to make appearances on the brand new music TV show Ready Steady Go. The Springfields had appeared on the pilot episode and had been booked for the first show. But following the band's split, Dusty, who had become friends with the programme's young editor, Vicky Wickham, was asked to present three editions of the show. The three shows were broadcast in the three weeks leading up to the release of I Only Want to Be With You, and there's no doubt that they were the best possible boost the upcoming single could have had. to ask you here. Please, could you tell me the name of your racing greyhound? Uh, I haven't got one, actually. You haven't? No, it's a... Well, a girl sent in a letter to me, and she said, would you like a great, uh, racing greyhound? A racing... And I said, uh, yeah. But she hasn't sent it yet. She hasn't? Oh. Why she send it to the I'm sure she... No, she hasn't sent it yet. I hope she does, though. Yeah. Oh, a great one. Listen, listen. Is it true you sleep with your eyes open? Uh... Well, you know, I haven't seen myself do it, but actually, the fellas say that uh, say that I do. They do. Now, they've sort of seen me you sleeping have. with my eyes open. I they really have. Too. How can you do that? I don't know. You know, it's just sort of half open. clever. Just brilliant, Paul. Yeah. Uh, Please ask Paul if he plucks his well-shaped eyebrows. I think he. Uh, do you? Um, no. You know, and it doesn't look so. No, they're perfectly beautiful girls. No. They're absolutely beautiful. Paul, do you mind girls screaming all through your act? Uh, no, really, uh, we like him screaming, generally, all of us, but uh, it's a bit much all the way through. Yeah. But we love him screaming. Yeah, yeah. John, uh, this is a question which you've probably been asked a thousand times before, but you always, all of you give different versions or different answers, so you've got to tell me now, how did the Beatles get their name? Uh, I just thought of it. You just thought of it? Another brilliant Beatles! No, no, really. Were they called anything else before? Principal? They called the, uh, quarry men. Oh, you rugged character. Oh, John, listen, listen. Do you have false teeth, as they always look so evil? Even? No. Even. They're all chipped and battered. No. Girls, would you say his teeth were chipped and battered? No. No! They're rather beautiful. No, they're real. Lovely teeth. <laughs> Is it true that when you were a kid, you were shot at for stealing apples? Yes, yes. Is that what these uh, beautiful marks no, are? No, they're scabbed. They're scabbed. Let's have a look. Show them your scabs. There's nothing there at all. He's got a beautiful complexion. Let me see your scabs. Hey. <laughs> I think this is where we better start finishing. What are you going to see? This month would also see the resignation of Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, having finally been brought down by a series of brutal by-election defeats and the fallout from the Profumo affair. The Profumo affair, incidentally, would later play a significant role in Dusty's life with the film Scandal, but undoubtedly the most significant event of those weeks leading up to the success of Dusty's first single would be the assassination of John F. Kennedy in November 1963. Dusty handed over presenting duties of Ready Steady Go to Kathy McGowan, and as I Only Want to Be With You climbed the charts, she found herself to be a mod icon. Ready Steady Go became the spiritual home of the mods, who filled the audience every week dancing to some of their favourite bands. By now, Vic Billings had replaced Emlyn Griffiths as her manager, 
and overseeing a solo career, he arranged appearances on the Billy Cotton Band Show, her first solo appearance on Sunday Night at the London Palladium, as well as her first British tour starting two days after the release of the single. Performing on the bill were Brian Paul and the Tremolos, The Searchers and Freddie and the Dreamers. Dusty played Liverpool, Tunbridge Wells, Brighton and the Midlands. Her act included Rock Me in the Cradle of Love and Hallelujah, I Love Him So, as well as, of course, I Only Want to Be With You. Despite being remembered as a solo artist, Dusty did actually have her own backing band, The Echoes, as well as backing singers. And she certainly faced a degree of competition in the world of soul and R&B, for in addition to the Beatles, acts like the Rolling Stones and then the Animals and the Yardbirds were all adapting their own version of the genre. There were also other female singers posing fierce competition, including Kathy Kirby, who beat Dusty to the top spot as Melody Maker's Best British Female Artist of 1963. And of course, Scylla Black would also be taking the country by storm as she followed the Lennon-McCartney-penned Love of the Love with the Burt Bacharach classic Anyone Who Had a Heart. Follow the short tour of Belfast and Dublin, Leeds and then Holland, plus numerous other TV shows. But perhaps one of the most important TV appearances for Dusty took place on New Year's Day 1964. This was the date that the first ever episode of Top of the Pops was recorded. The show was recorded in a converted church in Manchester, and the first group to appear on the long-running show was the Rolling Stones. What generally isn't remembered today is that they were followed by Dusty Springfield, making her the first solo act to appear on the show. A fact that Dusty herself was not even aware of until it was pointed out to her many years later. Dusty completed a 29-date UK tour, followed by 12 days in Australia and New Zealand. April 1964, and Dusty released her first solo album, A Girl Called Dusty. The cover art featured the new Dusty Springfield, 
wearing a blue denim shirt hanging loose over her jeans with her hair tossed to one side and a beaming smile. A Dusty, now free of the constrictions that being in the Springfields brought with it. In the USA, Phillips released Wishing and Hoping from the album, composed by Bacharach and David, and it reached number six in the Billboard chart. reached number three in the UK chart. Released in July 1964, you can forgive it for not reaching any higher, as it was held off the top spot by the Beatles of A Hard Day's Night and the Rolling Stones with It's All Over Now. I just don't know what to do with myself Don't know just what to do with myself I'm so used to
like a summer rose It needs a sun gigs in America soon followed. The British invasion had truly arrived. Dusty would play on the same bill as the Ronettes, the Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, the Shirelles, the Temptations and the Miracles. And as Dusty would put it, she was just the guest artist, the token honky. At one point she was performing an incredible six shows a day over a ten day run and the first performance at 10am. It was tough, but Dusty discovered that alcohol was effective in calming her fears and her emotions. As Dusty's issues developed over the years, she would always take full responsibility for her later alcohol and drug issues, never pointing the finger at others. But at the time, there were some who said that Martha Reeves may have kicked off her drinking problem and even encouraged it. Dusty would deny this completely, and Martha Reeves became one of her closest friends. In America, Dusty would start to explore romantic relationships with some of her fellow female performers, and would return to England far more confident in herself than when she left. One of the most notable incidents in Dusty's career occurred in 1964, resulting in her being deported from South Africa. Dusty had been booked to play a series of concerts there later in the year, but was adamant that she would not play to segregated audiences. Of course, at this time, the public's opinion was that South Africa should not be an isolated pariah state, as racism was evident elsewhere around the world. In the US, of course, as well as British colonies such as Rhodesia, as well as Australia, and even on home soil in England. But since the Sharpeville massacre in 1960, the public were well aware of the segregation in public spaces, separate ID for blacks, and whites only areas and jobs, as was Dusty herself. It took her agent, Tito Burns, months to persuade her. But even then, this was only achieved after a way was found for Dusty to play to mixed audiences. There was a loophole in the South African law that effectively said that an act could play to a multiracial crowd as long as it was in a cinema with a live show. Brian Paul and the Tremolos had previously tried to exploit this loophole, 
ended up having to play to some segregated audiences and it looked like the same fate might befall on Dusty as well. Before Dusty and her backing group The Echoes had even landed in Johannesburg, there were rumblings that the authorities were on to them. A standoff between both sides began. Just before the first show on the 9th of December, two government officials requested that Dusty agree to two separate performances, one for the blacks and one for the whites. Dusty flatly refused. Doug Reese of the Echoes was asked to make sure that Dusty would be playing in front of a mixed crowd. He recalled that night, just before curtain up, I peeped for a crack in the curtain before the show, just to see if there were any black or non-white people in the audience. If they were, the show could go ahead. If not, I'd have to go and tell Dusty, and she'd refuse to go on stage. We'd wait, and then I'd look again. And a few minutes later, some black people would have been mysteriously rounded up to appear at the front. Following the two shows, there was what can only be described as a feeling of badly veiled menace. The two government agents attempted to get Dusty to sign some paperwork at her hotel, stating that the clause in her contract was void and had been included by mistake. Dusty stood firm. She was not going to be pushed around, and the officials left with a mysterious warning not to leave the hotel for fear that there might be people around who wouldn't be tolerant of all this. Following their exit, two policemen were suddenly posted at the entrance to the hotel. Attempts were made to split Dusty and her backing group apart with promises made to the Echoes that they could become major stars on their own in South Africa. And all the while, the atmosphere of the tour became sinister and sour as communication between London and South Africa flew back and forth as Dusty's team back home attempted to resolve the matter. The tour moved on to Cape Town, where Dusty successfully played to a joyous and grateful mixed audience. But the happier atmosphere didn't last too long, however, for sitting in the audience were the two grey-suited government officials. The two men appeared at the hotel following the show and announced that as Dusty had refused to sign the papers nullifying her contract, she would not be permitted to leave her hotel. She would, however, be permitted to leave the country. All night, lawyers attempted to calm the waters. The standoff continued for another three days. The South African government considered suing Dusty at one point for breach of contract before announcing that she was free to leave on a flight to Rome, but without the echoes, as there was only two seats remaining. Dusty refused before eventually, after more seats were made available, she and her entourage left for the airport under police escort. The bold headlines announced Showbiz versus Apartheid and Dusty ordered out. And immediately on her return, Dusty held a press conference. I am not at all political, she proclaimed. I just think that people should be allowed to hear me sing, irrespective of colour, creed or religion. A group of MPs praised Dusty's stance against what they called the obnoxious doctrine of apartheid, which prompted a reply from the South African government, who said that Dusty had not in fact been deported, but had in fact left of her own free will, as she had refused to apply for the correct aliens temporary permit. Whatever the reason for Dusty's exit from South Africa, the outcome was that their government closed that particular loophole that she had attempted to take advantage of and banned her records for decades. 
The swinging 60s and mid-decade London was the centre of the universe. Kings and queens of this universe were the models, the movie stars and of course the pop artists. In 1964, more records were bought than ever before, or would ever be bought again. The drudgery and gloom of rationing in the immediate post-war years were well and truly behind now, and the new age began to take hold. An age where everything modern and fast was in. The establishment, as well as everything gloomy and old, was seen off on its way. Dusty would be continually tweaking the Dusty persona. As miniskirts got shorter, Dusty's gowns got longer. There were hours of makeup sessions and hair appointments at Vidal Sassoon, and unlike Sandy Shaw or Scylla Black, she was just that little bit older, glamorous and well-educated. would prove to be a key year, for not only was it a high point for pop music, it also marked the most formative year of Dusty's career. A very important year for Dusty, as she began to forge and cement relationships with three of the most fundamental influences in her life, Madeline Bell, Motown and Burt Bacharach. Dusty first met Burt Bacharach in February 1964. She'd already recorded her versions of Wishing and Hoping and 24 Hours from Tulsa, which had been included on her first solo album, and she was a great admirer of his other works, especially Don't Make Me Over. There was an immediate connection between the pair, some may even have said attraction. Dusty once admitted that they had slept together, although this was never confirmed by Burt Bacharach himself. Dusty and Burt would sit at the piano for hours, playing songs and chatting about music. Dusty was literally spoilt for choice, with the wealth of excellent material on offer. In particular, I just don't know what to do with myself. The song had previously been recorded by Tommy Hart in 1962, and other artists, including Dionne Warwick, had since covered it. But Dusty's passionate and powerful version highlighted the drama and the despair. It reached number three in the charts and remains one of the most iconic songs of the 1960s.
Dusty's friendship with Madeline Bell first began at the Ready Steady Go New Year's Eve party in 1964. Bell, today best known as a member of the group Blue Mink or DJ on Radio 1, was an up-and-coming little-known singer who had appeared a couple of times on the show. Dusty was in need of a backing singer and was an admirer of Bell's work. At the time, there were very few black singers in Britain. Notable exceptions, of course, were Shirley Bassey and Cleo Lane. In fact, it had been known that if Little Richard or Ray Charles had released an LP, it would not feature their face on the sleeve. Madeline Bell had grown up in New Jersey. She became part of a gospel choir that were rivals to the choir that included Dionne Warwick and Sissy Houston, and she became best friends with Dusty Springfield, not only working together, but sharing the same flat as well as a deep love for the same music. Madeline would be one of the few people to call Dusty by her real name, Mary, but only in private. They would talk for hours, staying up late as Dusty would quiz Madeline on gospel music, her background, America and black churches. In return, Dusty would talk about her family life and the emotional problems she was experiencing after being brought up and educated by nuns at the convent school. She would also discuss her sexuality. Around this time, Dusty found herself being pursued by the press, hounding her in an effort to know about her true sexuality. By 1964, Dusty was involved in fake arranged romances designed specifically to throw the press off the scent. There were specifically arranged photo calls with singer Eden Kane, the brother of Peter Sarsted. Kane would typically be pictured in carefully staged photos, showing him waiting for her in her dressing room with a huge bunch of flowers, or greeting her with a kiss on the cheek. these were ultimately a series of what on the surface appeared to be promising yet unfulfilled romances. Beneath the smoke and mirrors, Dusty would frequent various lesbian bars such as Gateways in Chelsea, but throughout it all she would struggle to come to terms with her sexuality and continue to have casual liaisons with men as well as women. Unfounded rumours about Dusty's living arrangements and relationships with Madeline Bell would often surface. And through it all, Madeline Bell remained Dusty's closest friend, eventually singing backing vocals on all Dusty's stage appearances and recordings.
The sound of Motown was hitting the US radio airwaves and charts like a hurricane throughout 1961 and 1962. But it was failing to make any real impact in the UK until 1964 with its first real impression on the UK chart, My Guy by Mary Wells. Radio Caroline warmly adopted the sound and with loads of airplay they were instrumental in getting the Supremes Where Did Our Love Go to number two and Baby Love to the top spot. The first Motown tour, the Motown Review, arrived in Britain in March 1965. At the head of the tour, acting as a kind of unofficial promoter and ambassador, stood Dusty Springfield. For March, she fronted a Rediffusion TV special called The Sound of Motown, which featured acts such as the old Van Dyke Six, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, the Supremes, and the Vandellas, fronted by Dusty's good friend Martha Reeves. As well as these acts, the tour would consist of Diana Ross and Stevie Wonder, who would perform 21 shows in 24 days. Looking back now at that stellar lineup, it's hard to believe that the tour received a generally lukewarm reception with a poor audience turnout. The UK was not yet fully exposed to the Motown sound and black music in general. But the audiences that did turn up were true fans, lovers of the music that Dusty herself adored. And if it wasn't for Dusty's tireless promotion and enduring friendship with the acts themselves, the tour would probably have been a complete failure. As Dusty would recall later, I think I unofficially helped push Motown because I made people listen to it.
1965 could possibly be viewed as the year that Dusty was at the height of her powers. Early in the year, she sang in the San Remo Song Festival. She was eliminated in the semi-finals after a full-out rehearsal drained her voice, something that would occur quite often throughout her career. But although eliminated from the competition, one night, listening in the audience, she would hear a song that would later be crucial to her career. There was an Italian ballad entitled Io Che Non Vivo Senzati and on her return to London with the help of Vicky Wickham and Simon Napier-Bell, the manager of the Yardbirds, it became You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, which reached number one when eventually released the following year, 1966. But more on that single later. remainder of 1965 there were several UK tours including three weeks with the searchers and the zombies there was a trip to the Mardi Gras in Rio with Madeline Bell Martha Reeves her brother Tom now managing the seekers and Pepe Borza returning from Rio there was the Motown TV special and the NME poll winners concert at Wembley February would see the release of your hurting kind of love Dusty would regard this as her first flop as a solo artist as it only reached number 39 in the charts.
pressure was on to find a hit. Her next release in May was In the Middle of Nowhere, and although it featured backing vocals by Madeline Bell, Leslie Duncan and Doris Troy, Dusty hated it. But it did manage to peak at number five in the UK chart. will continue with trips to America, a holiday in the Virgin Islands to recover from exhaustion, a road trip across Arizona with Pepe Borza, and the release of Summer You're Loving in late September. The song was written by Goffin and King, and with Madeline Bell, Leslie Duncan and Kiki D on backing vocals, it reached number eight and would lead to a deal with the soul label Atlantic Records.
Dusty's next album, entitled Everything's Coming Up Dusty, was released in October 1965. And following on from the youthful pop sound of her previous album, A Girl Called Dusty, it was a more mature sound. The album cover even reflected the adult Dusty with her hair pinned up and perfect makeup and high neck gown. The album included the tracks Won't Be Long, previously a hit for Aretha Franklin four years earlier, as well as Oh No, Not My Baby, I Had a Talk With My Man, La Bamba, Live It Up and Who Can I Turn To. recording was now taking place in New York, leading to the record company releasing the Dusty in New York EP. Dusty was taking control of her music now and was certainly a perfectionist. Dusty knew what sound she wanted. As good as the British session musicians were, some of the best in the world, they had never played the kind of black music that Dusty loved. She would teach them how to play in a completely different way to what they were used to and create tunes that Dusty described as light years ahead of their time. In fact, Dusty produced both of her first albums herself, something she never took credit for. Dusty would encourage the musicians to create the loose, uninhabited funk of the Motown sound, her passion evident throughout. And when the sound of the Philips studio just didn't seem right with what she described as a dead sound, she would resort to singing in the hallway, hanging over the stairwell, or famously, in the case of You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, in the ladies' toilet. The resulting album, Everything's Coming Up Dusty, reached number six in the LP chart, selling £5,000 worth of records per day. There's one part of Dusty's behaviour that's not been mentioned as yet, but it stems back to her childhood, and that was her unpredictability. In particular, her predilection for throwing things around, most notably food. As a child, her mother would often vent her anger by throwing food across the kitchen, actively encouraging her children to do likewise. It was a trait that Dusty would carry into most of her adult life. There were numerous incidents reported of crockery and food throwing, usually in anger and sometimes ending up as a light-hearted food fight. Dusty, when questioned about this compulsion by an American journalist in 1965, replied, Well, I haven't thrown any here yet, and I only do it under extreme stress, and only in my own place, and I always clean up the mess. 
Dusty was also a great practical joker, filling friends' purses with soap powder. The Shangri-Las had their boots filled with anchovies, no less, and there was the story of one of Dusty's friends who woke up one morning to find that Dusty had virtually carpeted her five-bedroom house with unravelled rolls of toilet paper. Friends and colleagues will recall that Dusty, although often quick to vent her rage or anger, would rarely back down or apologise, choosing instead to buy gifts as a way of saying sorry. And if Dusty was drinking more around this time, she was still only dabbling at the edges of drug use and never smoked cigarettes at all. In 1966, for two years now, Dusty had produced hit after hit, with just the occasional song falling by the wayside. The year started on a positive note with the release of Little by Little, reaching number 17 in the chart. Perhaps the biggest event of the year occurred in April, when Dusty finally achieved her first number one single. 
The song was You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. It had been over a year since she'd heard the original Italian version at the San Remo Song Festival. The song would become to many her signature tune, one that she would sing at every performance, even when she could no longer hit the high notes. As mentioned earlier, Dusty was a perfectionist musically. For example, when recording You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, she would literally sing it line by line as she wanted it to be perfect. For example, she would sing You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, Just Be Close at Hand, then stop, listen back to the recording. If it was okay, she would carry on. If not, the control room would run the tape back and she'd sing it again. Even to the point with the line, when I said I needed you, if need wasn't on the correct beat, she would stop and go back again. Line by line, Dusty would record, unsure of just how great she really was.
Later that year, in July, Dusty released a track that would send shivers down the spines of her fans. A song that encapsulated her haunting and fragile life. Going Back, written by Goffin and King, made Madeline Bell cry the first time she heard it. And so powerful was the song, Dusty herself burst into tears the first time she performed it live on Tarbuck at the Prince of Wales.
1966 also proved important for Dusty, not just with regards to her music and her career, but with her personal life. For it was in this year that she fell in love and moved in with American singer and artist Norma Tanega. Dusty first met Norma on the set of Thank You Lucky Stars, and after a few months of transatlantic meetings and phone calls, the pair eventually moved in together. In early summer this year, Dusty appeared in her first solo TV series. Simply entitled Dusty, it would attract an audience of nearly 10 million viewers. And in a time where British TV would only be broadcasting three pop shows a week, Dusty created a bridge between English and American music. The show would also feature guest stars such as Tom Jones, Scott Walker, Woody Allen, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, Warren Mitchell, Mel Torme and Jose Feliciano. And performing on TV will permit the audience to not only hear Dusty's full range musically, but also give an insight into her shy, quirky and sweet personality. would see Dusty sign for Atlantic Records. You Don't Have to Say You Love Me hit number four in the US charts and Dusty involved in a court case where she was fined £1,900 for knocking down a 63-year-old woman whilst driving through central London late at night wearing sunglasses. There were further shows in New York and the Northern Club Circuit and a TV advert for Mother's Pride Bread. In fact, in 1966, Dusty Springfield achieved more hit records than any other artist. I'm a happy knocker-upper and I'm popular beside Cause I wake them with a cuppa And tasty mother's pride Then they're off in a flash and a rush It's the bread And a dash and a push It's the bread With a flash and a dash and a rush and a push Like I said, it's the bread It's the mother's pride bread It makes them love work They're going berserk to get off their work It's in the way I wake them By bringing to the side The bread we freshly bake them Fantastic Mother's Pride! Into 1967, I'll Try Anything spent nine weeks on the UK chart, peaking at number 13. More TV shows, tours, cabarets and a hugely successful stint at the talk of the town. May 1967, Give Me Time reaches number 24, spending six weeks in the UK chart. If you're only give me I'll be free to love again 
Dusty's relationship with Norma continued to bloom with Dusty buying her first real home for the pair of them. But at the same time, Dusty would be having a relationship with singer Julie Felix. There was a brief fling with her male drummer, and through it all, Dusty would drink. When she was sober, she would be a normal, somewhat highly strung self, but when drinking, it would be to excess. She would also be taking Mandrax, a popular downer in the 60s and 70s. Friends would even notice that she had started to self-harm by cutting her arm with a knife. Dusty split from her manager, Vic Billings, a decision that many saw as a mistake. He had steered Dusty to incredible success over the previous five years, and now Dusty had to deal with all the unfamiliar administrative decisions and headaches. But now, with Atlantic as a recording label, Dusty was ready to record the album of her career. The album, which is generally regarded as the greatest album in Dusty's catalogue, in fact for many it's one of the greatest albums ever, was released on the 31st of March 1969. Despite it being unsuccessful at its time of release, Dusty in Memphis has become a monument to Dusty's unique soulful sound. Following the massive success of You Don't Have to Say You Love Me in 1966, there was a relatively lean year in terms of chart success in 1967. It was now time for a change of direction. Dusty stayed with Phillips in the UK, but signed with the soul giant Atlantic Records in the US. Atlantic had two major recording studios in the southern USA. One was the famous Muscle Shoals, the other was Chip Moman's American Sound Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. 
A bespoke song list was drawn up, including material from Barry Mann and Cynthia Vile, Just a Little Lovin'. There was a Bacharach and David number in the land of make-believe. A young Randy Newman contributed the great Just One Smile. And there was four tracks written by Jerry Goffin and Carol King. So much in love, don't forget about me. No easy way down, and I can't make it alone. The producers were Jerry Wexler, Tom Dowd and Arif Mardin. Backing singers for the sessions were the Sweet Inspirations and the session players known collectively as the Memphis Cats have previously backed Wilson Pickett, King Curtis and Elvis Presley. But despite all of this talent, Dusty felt uneasy in the new surroundings and her insecurities seemed to take over. Producer Jerry Wexler would later recall that the recording was a challenge for all concerned. Out of all the songs originally recorded for the album, Dusty approved exactly zero. To say yes to one song was seen as a lifetime commitment. In fact, eventually Dusty chose two numbers, Just a Little Lovin' and The Legendary Son of a Preacher Man. And notwithstanding the authentic southern flavour of the tracks, due to Dusty's very real anxiety about being compared to the soul greats who had recorded in the same studios, her final vocals were recorded at later sessions in New York. The album was a commercial failure on both sides of the Atlantic, only reaching number 99 in the US album chart and failing to chart altogether in the UK Top 40. It was the first time Dusty had worked with outside producers, having self-produced the previous albums. Thankfully, the album eventually became a pop cultural milestone. It has frequently been named one of the greatest albums of all time and its reputation has improved significantly over the passing years. It is Dusty Springfield's greatest work, and many believe it to be one of the greatest pop records ever recorded. Its elegant and distinct fusion of pop and R&B predated the Philly sound of the 70s, and it is one of the most important blue-eyed soul albums of all time. Learning from each other 
Following the Memphis album, Dusty recorded further tracks in early 1969 in New York with Jerry Wexler. What was intended to be the next album never materialised from these sessions, which included Dusty's version of To Love Somebody. Written by Barry and Morris Gibb, originally for Otis Redding, all traces of the recording appear to have been lost, apart from this live studio recording that was eventually included on Dusty, the complete BBC sessions. At this point in time, nobody realised just how highly regarded Dusty and Memphis would eventually become. And so, Dusty, who didn't wish to work in the same town with the same musicians, moved on to the Philadelphia soul sound made famous by Gamble and Huff. The Philly sound would overtake Motown by the mid-70s with its mix of black R&B and Italian strings and orchestration. But Dusty, who was always on top of the musical trends, had preempted the success of this new sound. Recording Gamble and Huff's first album just before they hit the big time with classics such as If You Don't Know Me By Now by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and Love Train by the OJs. The album was entitled From Dusty With Love in the UK. The only hit from the album was Brand New Me, which would be Dusty's last US Top 40 entry for 17 years and failed to reach the UK chart at all, bringing the 60s to a very disappointing conclusion. Baby, I got a brand new style. 
Following the release of From Dusty With Love, she gave an interview to Ray Connolly at the Evening Standard. Things were not going well at the start of the new decade. Her partner, Norma Tanega, was looking to leave her and return to America. The hits were not coming, and Dusty felt it was now time to open up about her sexuality. Dusty had never met Connolly before, and it gave her a sort of confidence to reveal far more than she'd ever done before. Tired of the charade and fearful that she would end up just a tired old cabaret performer, Dusty teased Connolly with hints about her little vices and her promiscuity. She spoke about renouncing her faith and how much it would upset her mother when she would read about it in the newspaper. And then Dusty jumped head first into what she actually wanted to say. Go on, ask me, she said. What? replied Connolly. You know, said Dusty. Connolly, taken aback as he was not sure what to say, mumbled something about girls. This gave Dusty the opportunity to say exactly what she had been skirting around during the interview and masking for all of her adult life. There's only one thing that's always annoyed me, she said, and I'm going to get into something nasty here, but I've got to say it. Because so many other people have said I'm bent, and I've heard it so many times that I've almost learned to accept it. Dusty would go on to reveal that she was perfectly capable of being swayed by a girl as by a boy, and as Connolly studiously took note of all of Dusty's words that day, he couldn't help but think how on earth could he print this. Connolly would say, After all, girls in her situation didn't come out and talk about being gay or bisexual. No one did. But the interview was published. Dusty wanted it out there, but even then, Connolly didn't want to be the man who outed Dusty and could potentially ruin her career. The interview was entitled Dusty at 30, and the paragraph about her sexuality was tucked away somewhere towards the middle of the story, its significance not really seized upon until much later.
Throughout the remainder of the 70s, Dusty would continue to record, spending most of her time in the US avoiding the tabloid's obsession with the hounding of gay and bisexual performers. She found time to sing backing vocals on Elton John's 1971 album Tumbleweed, and with a new manager, was negotiated out of her contract with Atlantic Records. Further albums followed with favourable reviews, but poor sales. She even recorded the Little Heard theme tune to the Six Million Dollar Man TV series. Mission Control, Steve, what is it? What's wrong? I was hoping you could tell me. He's alive. He lost an arm, two legs, and one eye, but he's alive. I'm not sure he'd want to live if he can't be the man he was. What if he could be more than the man he was? We have the technology to rebuild him. I want it done no matter what the cost. There was further backing work for Elton John and Anne Murray, as well as a charity concert at the Royal Albert Hall in 1979 in the presence of Princess Margaret. One of Dusty's recordings from 1971 to 1986 charted on the UK Top 40 or Billboard Hot 100. Until 1987, where she accepted an invitation from Neil Tennant to duet on the Pet Shop Boys single What Have I Done to Deserve This, which reached number two in both the UK and the USA. You always want Further more successful albums followed, with another hit single, Nothing Has Been Proved, released in 1989 in the soundtrack to Scandal, the movie about the Perfumo Affair. Paper, she tried to go to Spain. 
1999. Dusty had been scheduled to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Five years earlier she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer and despite a valiant battle with months of radiation treatment and chemotherapy, she passed away just two weeks before she was due to receive the coveted honour. Elton John took part in the induction stating, I'm biased but I think she was the greatest white singer there has been. Every song she sang, she claimed as her own. As well as the battle with cancer, Dusty would battle many other demons. Her strict Catholic upbringing, her sexuality and her alcohol addiction. Dusty had many on-off relationships over the years, often tempestuous and sometimes violent. In 1982, she met actress Tita Baracci at an AA meeting and the pair exchanged vows at a wedding ceremony soon after although it was not legally recognised under Californian law. The pair separated within two years. Dusty was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and would often be admitted to hospital with cuts to her arms, often fuelled by drugs and alcohol. But despite all of this, she was one of the best-selling UK singers of the 1960s. As part of the British invasion, she scored an impressive 18 singles in the Billboard Hot 100 between 1964 and 1970, including six top 20 hits. And as recently as 1994, the re-release of Son of a Preacher Man sold another 3 million copies thanks to its inclusion in Quentin Tarantino's movie Pulp Fiction. A massively successful artist, combined with a desperate insecurity, Dusty's fear of failure was matched by her unique talent for music. A true icon of the 1960s, and one of the voices not just of that decade, but of the entire 20th century. Her musical legacy still influencing today's recording stars. A musical legend we may never see the likes of again. In 1967, David Frost was king of the talk shows. 
in one particular episode of the Frost Report that year, he created one of the most remarkable pieces of television ever broadcast in the UK. Join me next time as I tell the story of David Frost, Emil Savundra and Trial by Television. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or take a look at the website rainbowvalley.libsyn.com You can send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com This has been a Stinking Paws production. (laughs) 